In Galatians 1, 6 through 9, the Apostle Paul wrote, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only that there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be accursed. We covered this passage last week. We're using it again today to introduce the further statements of the Apostle Paul. And that statement is a very powerful statement. He said something twice, so we wouldn't miss it. And while it may be shocking to do so, perhaps we should make certain that everyone understands just what let him be accursed means. It means... Let him be damned. Let him go to hell. Now, that's not a nice thing to say. And I'm sure some were offended by it. It certainly wasn't seeker-sensitive. But then again, Paul wasn't trying to please men. And he readily admits it. He says, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. A bondservant of Christ cannot worry about pleasing men. That's not to suggest he should be unnecessarily antagonistic or have utter disdain and disregard for the feelings of others, but he cannot allow the feeling or the fear of offending someone Keep him from saying what his master would have him say. He must not limit his message to things that will be readily accepted, liked, and popular. Paul knew when he said the Galatians were deserting Christ and had brought in and had bought in to a distorted gospel, they wouldn't like it. But it didn't stop him. And even more offensive was his audacity to declare that if anyone should preach anything other than what he had already preached to them, he should go to hell. Now, Paul is not just being judgmental of others when he says that. The we includes Paul. It wouldn't matter who did it. Anyone who would dare to change the gospel should be sent to hell. They should be sent To hell, Paul says. Be they Paul's co-workers, apostles, angels, or even Paul himself. The gospel that Paul delivered to the Galatians was not something that could be altered by anyone. What they had received was the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That was Paul's assertion. So help him God. 
But how did they know? They had been told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And even more importantly for us, how do we know if we have been told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Now, even though the Galatians were questioning it, they had heard it from an apostle. But none of us has. So how do we know that the one who shared the gospel with us has it right? Isn't it possible that we heard it from someone who was more like the Apollos we read about in the 18th chapter of Acts? He was a powerful preacher, and he knew the Old Testament scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, but there were some holes in his theology. He hadn't been taught about the Holy Spirit, and his understanding of baptism was inadequate. So Priscilla and Aquila had to take aside the preacher and explain to him the way of God more accurately. How are the Galatians to know whether they had received the gospel from an Apollos or from one with full and accurate knowledge of the gospel? How are they to know Paul was right and the Judaizers were wrong? Paul had to answer that question before they will accept what he has to say about grace. An understanding that differed markedly from what they were being taught by those who insisted that Christians had to abide by all the laws, traditions, restrictions, and obligations of the Old Testament before they could be found acceptable to God. They won't hear what he has to say until they know why they should listen to him. And so Paul begins the defense of his apostleship and the gospel he had preached to the Galatians. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for neither I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul begins by stating in no uncertain terms that the gospel he preached wasn't something he made up or even got from another man. The gospel he declared came through a direct revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, if he could support that claim, that would settle it. If the gospel came directly from Jesus Christ, who could dispute it? Now, we know from looking into the book of Acts, that what he is saying is true. We looked at his conversion experience on the road to Damascus last week. We read of Christ's post-resurrection, post-ascension appearance to Paul, and of Paul's direct commission to be an apostle. The Galatians, however, couldn't look up the account in the book of Acts. Luke hadn't yet written it. And just saying it so doesn't make it so. After all, don't most who say they have a message from God claim it came directly from him? So how could the Galatians and how can we determine whether or not the preacher is telling the truth? In other words, how can we check out the preacher? 
Obviously, we have at our disposal a resource the Galatians didn't have. We have four divinely inspired accounts of the gospel message and can compare anything that is said against what is written in God's word. But even if we have a good working knowledge of the scriptures, we can be led astray. Scripture can be twisted and distorted. And a persuasive preacher can cause us to question our understanding, even if it is right. So how do we know if we should listen to him? Again, how do we check out the preacher? I think Paul would have us do what he invited the Galatians to do. Check out his life, his calling, and his sources. He begins by opening up his past to the Galatians and inviting them to check out his life. Verses 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Paul didn't try to hide anything about his life. He was an open book. He begins by acknowledging that the Galatians knew about his past. And if he hadn't shared it himself, I'm sure the Judaizers had. He had persecuted the church. He had actually tried to destroy it. That in and of itself would naturally make him and his message suspect. And how could you trust someone who had hunted down Christians, tried to force them to renounce their faith and condemn them to death if they didn't? What if he was now a double agent? posing as an apostle while actually seeking to condemn Christians to eternal damnation by preaching a false gospel. I'm sure the Judaizers had tried to use his past against him. Paul, however, disarms them by openly acknowledging his past without trying to spin it. He doesn't play it down. He doesn't minimize it. He says he persecuted the church of God beyond measure. He doesn't try to justify it. He doesn't make excuses for what he did. He simply admits it. Yes, I tried to destroy the church. But the zeal that he had shown in persecuting the church, which he had thought to be and heretical departure from Judaism could also assure the Galatians that he understood the Old Testament even better than those who are now challenging his understanding of the law. Before his conversion, he had been a top student of the law. In his testimony recorded in Acts, he revealed that he had studied under Gamaliel and that he was a Pharisee and the son of Pharisee. And he certainly understood the importance of circumcision to a Jew. Having been raised in a Jewish home, he had been circumcised on the eighth day. He was in every way what he declared himself to be in Philippians, a Hebrew of Hebrews, 
But, as he also stated in Philippians, those things that he once counted as so important, he now counted as rubbish in view of what he had found in knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. Now, he doesn't share that in so many words with the Galatians. But the surpassing greatness of what he had found in Christ and in grace will become evident in his letter to them. All he's doing now is disarming his, his critics by making sure his readers know there are no skeletons in his closet. He openly shares with them both the bad and the good of his past and, in effect, invites them to check him out. Anyone who would presume to teach you God's word should be willing to do the same. He should be open about his past and willing to let you know where he's coming from. And he shouldn't be offended if you check him out yourself. If his answers are evasive and things just don't add up, you should dig a little deeper. It's vitally important that you have confidence in the character of anyone who would offer to teach you things of eternal significance. Now, you should be aware that anyone who would claim to speak for God will be painting a target on his back. He will be inviting others to take a swing at him like they do the president, or as he was recently referred to as the pinata in chief. <laughs> thought that was funny. Now, as a safeguard against unfounded accusations, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 5.19 not to receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So groundless rumors about a preacher's past or his current life shouldn't make him suspect. But legitimate concerns should be openly explored and welcomed by the preacher. So don't be afraid to check out the preacher's past. And while you're at it, check out his call. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul had been focusing on what he had done in the past. His focus now changes to what God did. Paul had been advancing in Judaism and was extremely zealous for his ancestral traditions. But then God called him and set him apart to preach the gospel to Gentiles. Now, at first, that didn't make sense to Paul. He was certainly more qualified to preach to Jews who he fully understood than to Gentiles. In fact, right after his conversion, he started preaching to Jews, confounding them, proving to them that Jesus was the Christ. They responded, however, by wanting to kill him. And he had to be whisked out of town in a basket, lowered through a hole in the city wall. And then when he got to Jerusalem, he stood up the Jews to such an extent that the brethren sent him back home to Tarsus. After that, Luke notes the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. <laughs> At first, Paul did not understand God's call on his life. But he eventually came to understand that God had called him even from his mother's womb to preach among the Gentiles. 
even though he obviously didn't know it at the time, God had set him apart for ministry before he was born, as he had done Jeremiah. When the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, he was told, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And Before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Paul had likewise been called into the ministry. And I'm convinced God still calls men into the ministry today. In Ephesians, while speaking of our mutual calling in Christ, Paul makes it clear that God has given to the church some who are gifted by the Spirit to serve as apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. Now that we have the apostolic witness in written form, and God's will for us, as well as our future, revealed in the New Testament, apostles and prophets are no longer needed in the church. Evangelists and pastor teachers, however, are. And I'm convinced that God still calls men to be such. I must confess, however, that I really don't know how such calls are made. When I was six years old, I knew I was going to be a preacher. And when I questioned it for a couple of weeks in the ninth grade, I knew I could do nothing else. I didn't hear any voices. I just knew it. And I've never doubted it. But if a preacher doesn't tell you of his call into the ministry, how do you know God called him into it? You might start by simply asking him why he's in the ministry. What went into his decision to preach. Is it simply a career choice that he made? Or was it something he felt compelled to do? Now, years ago, I read a statement from an old preacher that made a lot of sense to me. When asked whether someone should go into the ministry or not, he said if they could do anything else, they shouldn't. Now, he's not saying that if you don't have what it takes to make it, in the real world of business and commerce, you should go into the ministry. He's saying if you know in your heart that you could never be content doing anything else, that you share Paul's passion expressed in, woe is me if I preach not the gospel, then you should be a preacher. So even if a preacher doesn't verbalize his sense of call into the ministry, you might find evidence for it in his passion for preaching. And you may be able to discern it by trying to see what motivates him. If he appears to be more interested in pleasing people than pleasing the Lord, you might be justified in calling his call into question. And while it is true that those who proclaim the gospel are to get their living from the gospel, a minister who seems unduly concerned with the material benefits of the ministry may have gone into the ministry for the wrong reasons. Now, we have to be careful here because it's very dangerous to judge a man's motives. But what a man does in ministry may give an idea as to why he went into it. And more importantly, what he really believes and why he preaches what he preaches. And that brings us to something else we ought to check out. Check out 
his sources. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown by sight to the churches in Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Paul wanted there to be no doubt about the source of the message he proclaimed. After God called him, he didn't consult with flesh and blood. He didn't ask anyone what he should preach. He didn't even go to Jerusalem to learn from the other apostles. He went away to Arabia. Now, this is the only place we read of that. And he doesn't tell us what he did while there. But the inference is that while he was there, he received the message he was to proclaim. He's already said that he received the gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's a good possibility that while he was alone in the desert, Jesus personally instructed him as to what he was to preach. And I think we're safe in assuming he reexamined the Old Testament scriptures to see what he had missed. That he studied the scriptures to understand how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies and promises God had made. After his time in Arabia, he returned to Damascus, preaching there until his escape in the night, and then went to Jerusalem and briefly met with Peter and James. In Acts, we learn they didn't take him under their wing and mentor him. They were suspicious of him and only agreed to meet with him at the insistence of Barnabas. After a couple of weeks with them, he headed home to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And he then spent ten or more years there preaching the message he had received from Christ. Now, he shared this with the Galatians because he wanted them to know that he wasn't feeding them second-hand information. He was preaching them the gospel directly from a primary source. And while preachers no longer have the opportunity to learn directly from Christ in the desert, they can still get the messages they proclaim from the primary source. They can and should get their sermons from God's Word. Now, that's not to suggest that it's wrong for preachers to go to Bible college, consult commentaries, read sermons from other preachers, and even get things off the Internet. But if a preacher is actually getting the sermons he preaches from others, you might be justified in questioning his call to be a preacher. And if it becomes obvious 
He isn't getting the messages he preaches directly from God's word. You may need to do more than simply evaluate the accuracy of his interpretation and the appropriateness of his application. You may have to examine the theology of the one from whom he is getting his sermons. You may have to check out more preachers than just the one who is preaching to you. Bottom line, you have to be careful who you listen to. You must carefully check out anyone who would presume to teach you things of eternal significance. Paul wanted the Galatians to have confidence in him. And I pray you can have confidence in me. But ultimately, the only one any of us can trust completely is the Lord himself. And it's the goal of my preaching to lead you to the place where you trust him and his word more than you trust any preacher. This is important stuff. It may sound academic, but it's so fundamental. You've got to know the truth. And the truth does exist, even in our postmodern world today. Trust the Lord, trust his word, and be sure that those who would teach it to you, teach it carefully and accurately. Let's stand and sing. Thank you.